1: Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
2: We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh-hoo, we're heating up, fam.
0: just can't
2: Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on Vandor. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It
0: goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the
2: 21 plus
3: and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non withdrawable.
0: bonus vest. expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.
2: This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to a Turn on the Jets digital special presentation. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at playlikeajet one and with all this turmoil going on with Adam Gase usurping Mike McKagnon and Brian Hammerdinger to take the Iron Throne, as fans of Game of Thrones would say, I thought that we would welcome back the guy that gave us our introduction to learning about Adam Gase back before the man was even hired. He is the host of Locked on Dolphins and the man who runs Locked on Mr. Travis Wingfield. Travis, what's going on, man?
3: Not much, man. I feel like I'm a, basically a co-host at this point, and they haven't even played a game yet. So it's like <laughs> I, it's I, I, this is like our trade-off for you guys giving us Mike Tannenbaum. That's kind of how I feel about it.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say, man, when I texted you what was going on, you said this feels like deja vu. What made you feel that way? <laughs> like?
3: Just I. It's like there was so much that went on with Adam Gaze at the end of his tenure in Miami that, of course, you know, fans' natural reactions and. I I lean more towards analysts these days than I do fan, but I still am a fan at heart. And so you try to find ways to talk your way into the positive side, right? Because that's what makes being a fan fun is having the positive outcome and the positive outlook. But in hindsight, you go back and it's like, okay, the writing was on the wall. I was just a little bit naive to it at the time. And now it kind of comes through and you're like, that makes a lot of sense. So I just feel like I've seen this story before a few times.
2: So when you heard about what happened, first the rumors and then the actual firings of McCagnin and Heimerdinger, what went through your mind? Were there any specific memories of things that Gase had done in Miami that flashed through your head?
3: Well, more specifically, just, I mean, I don't want to come on here and tell you guys how much I despise the Jets, but as a Dolphins fan, you kind (laughs) of do, right? So, like, it's hard because I have so many guys on Twitter like yourself and, you know, uh, like, uh, Kyle Smith and, and Kyle Feigh and, and Joe Blue, all those guys that are they're great. Do great work for the Jets film and all that stuff. It's like you guys are awesome, but I still hate your football team. So a bit <laughs> of me gets a little bit excited inside when I see that type of news. But as far as like this being a thing in the past, I mean, he Adam Gase's entire entire Miami Dolphins tenure was about butting heads with guys. So to say it surprised me would be a complete reach
2: specifically who are we talking about that sticks out in your head was it the owner was it mike tannenbaum
3: mostly players and like we talked about before we came on the air was there any ever any friction with management it was mostly with the players and mostly that end of the season you know in the locker room when he when beat reporters were talking to danny Amendola or jawan james or Kenyon drake and to a man it was basically my future in miami you know paraphrasing depends on who's here, basically. And, and they, what they meant by that was, if Adam Gaze is around, I don't want to be here. And Juwan James was a free agent-to-be. Danny Amendola was under contract, who eventually got cut by the team. So they decided his fate, not the other way around. And Kenyon Drake had said to the media, like, if Adam Gaze is here, I don't want to be here. So like, it, you have different factions of players in terms of where they were on their contracts that all wanted to part ways with Adam Gaze. And it was just clear that there was t- it was definitely time for a break in that marriage and to, and to go different
2: ways. So with that in mind, are you surprised at all that he apparently was making a big issue behind the scenes of not wanting Le'Veon Bell?
3: Not really, because I just think that he's so ingrained in the things that he, the way he sees things. And early on when Adam Gaze was hired there, I had a couple of guys that, you know, have connections to the team and they would say that the, the feeling in the building is different than it has been in the past. Because as you know, Scott, the, the Dolphins for lack of a better term, have been a dumpster fire with their own organizational decisions and the regime structures. It's been as convoluted as any team in the NFL over the last 15, 20 years. And when Adam Gaze got here, they – It was said that there was more structure and a more streamlined like fluid type of situation than they had had in the past where he would go into meeting rooms or go talk to scouts or go talk to assistants and say, hey, this is what I want my offensive lineman to look like. It's very specific, and I want him to be that way. They're very ingrained in their prototypes. so. For him to not want a running back that commands that type of a contract, I think part of that had to do with the fact they traded Jay Ajayi before he got to his contract, although now he's not going to get paid because he has the injury history now. But I just think that he's very rigid in the way he views positions. So I think that the running back position has always been one that he viewed that you don't have to pay a guy, and I think that just kind of comes through. I I have little doubt that he loves Le'Veon Bell, the player, because why wouldn't you? He's spectacular. I just think that that he didn't want to pay the type of money they paid Bell.
0: This is
2: the Overtime Podcast Network. Do you think part of this, too, and I've brought this up as a possibility, is that he reportedly wanted Tevin Coleman instead? Maybe this is an extension of him thinking that he's the smartest guy in the room because he can say, some sucker paid 12 to $15 million for Le'Veon Bell, but I know that I could get just as much out of Tevin Coleman in my system for half the price or a third of the price.
3: It wouldn't surprise me at all because he did the same thing with Julius Thomas coming to Miami, thinking that he could resurrect that guy's corpse back into an all-pro player, which clearly he didn't. But you look at the running back depth chart that year in twenty or 2017, after Ajayi's breakout year, when he got traded to Philadelphia, the Dolphins were left with Damien Williams, who is playing well in Kansas City last year, and Kenyon Drake. And there was a pretty even split until Damian Williams had a shoulder injury that put him on the sideline for the rest of the season. And Kenyon Drake comes in to be the starter and the absolute bell cow. He was playing like 85% of the snaps down the stretch that year. And all he did was lead the NFL in rushing those final five weeks. And so Dolphins fans' biggest concern with Adam Gaze was always that his self-scouting was garbage because they always ran out lineups. That didn't make any sense, and I actually tweeted about it yesterday, about Danny Amendola playing more than Jakeem Grant and Albert Wilson, about how he had no idea what was going on on his own defense, about how Mike Gesicki played 20% of his snaps as an inline blocker when he can't block anything, (laughs) like he's a a flex tight end, and you have him playing one-fifth of his snaps in line to try to pass protect and run block, so I just think that his own self-scouting is not very good, and while he might think he is the smartest guy in the room, history says otherwise.
2: So when you talk about him not even having any idea what's going on on his own defense, do you mean the coaching staff, too? Was it just one of those things where it was like, hey, I'm an offensive guy. You guys handle the defense. I'm going to go over here and handle the quarterback and the receivers and the running backs. And he almost was like a glorified offensive coordinator in a sense.
3: Yeah, 100 percent. And I'll say this without having to, you know, kind of reach for speculation because there's concrete evidence out there. And it actually was the game against the Jets in week nine, that thrilling like nine to six game or whatever the (laughs) hell it was, (laughs) where the only touchdown was a pick six. But it was after that game because Rashad Jones had taken himself out of the lineup after the Jets first or second series that game. And Adam Gaze didn't know he wasn't playing until the game was over. Like he didn't know that his star safety or I guess former star safety was out the entire game. Healthy on the sideline with his helmet in his hand. And so he had to talk to Matt Burke about that, the Dolphins defensive coordinator last year. And he basically had to come out and say, like, I'm going to make a more concerted effort to be involved on the defensive side of the football. And we also heard reports about the way the Dolphins practiced that players on the defensive side of the ball just couldn't stand him because they would always get issued over to like the secondary field. And the offense was the one that got the primary field and got all the eyes on them. So he basically was, like you mentioned, a glorified offensive coordinator
1: Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
2: This is the Overtime Podcast Network. It's weird, too, because from what I understand, when they had that big free agency splurge, it all went to the defensive side of the ball, despite the fact that Gase is an offensive guy and doesn't seem to want to be hands-on on the defensive side of things. Do you think that that was just a matter of, okay, I know that our defense is weak, and so we'll spend some money over there to shut those guys up? Yeah, for
3: the most part, because the entire mentality when he was here was he tried to emulate that like Peyton Manning, Colts and Broncos teams where they would score 35 points a game and then unleash the pass rush. And it's kind of laughable because they never got better than like 24 points per game. <laughs> and that's at their absolute peak. So and it was kind of a balance to offset the draft, too, because Adam Gaze's first draft with Miami, it was all about offense. They got Larry Tunzel. Jakeem Grant, uh, Leonte Carew, and Kenyon Drake all in their first draft class, and of course the one defensive player in there was Xavier Howard, who's now the Dolphins' best player, so pretty funny to think about that in hindsight, but I think it was more of a balancing act, just trying to fill out the roster, because their entire M.O. throughout Adam Gaze's tenure, and probably more to, to speak to Mike Tannenbaum's tenure, was to always find a way to plug the gaps on the roster, so you have these perceived holes in your roster, and it was all about Okay, we have this amount of resources for free agents, this amount of money to spend, and we have draft picks in the first round, second round, and then probably from there, that's about the kind of guys you can count on as far as the draft goes to be significant players on your team, and they always viewed those resources as means to fill those holes, and that sounds good on the surface, but to me, that's completely backwards, like you want to use free agency to supplement your roster in certain areas where it's weak and you want to draft the best players available and they were always backwards in that way and so I think that that was just kind of their thinking in terms of building the roster every single year to patch those holes to try to compete with the Patriots which obviously was not (laughs) ever a thing but it was always that was always the approach was to fill the holes and just think about the roster at a one-year focus at a time and that's how the Dolphins got where they are right now where their roster is completely you know barren of talent.
2: To the best of your knowledge, was that a Gase thing, a Tannenbaum thing, a combination of both? Because we've been told that Gase had full control of the 53-man roster, so even though Tannenbaum was the general manager, Gase was the one that had final say. That philosophy, was that an extension of his way of thinking?
3: I think it was really more of a tripod situation because, like I mentioned, the convoluted structure of the front office, it was always so blurry. There were so many blurred lines in terms of who did what. But I did read an article a while back about how the reason Stephen Ross liked Mike Tannenbaum was because he let his football guys do football things, and he was basically there to recruit and negotiate free agent contracts. And Chris Greer, who is now the Dolphins' like de facto GM, like the, there's no question about who's in charge anymore, the reason he got that job was because Miami's drafts have actually been pretty good especially comparatively to the years prior to when Chris Greer was the GM because they've gotten guys like Laramie Tunzel and Xavier Howard, and they found Kenyon Drake, and they found Devon Godshaw and Vincent Taylor later on in the draft. So they've, they've made hits throughout the course of the, you know, the first day, second day, third day of the draft, and that's how Chris Greer got that elevation. But I think that everybody that had a role in football operations – built it around the mold of what Adam Gaze wanted. So it was his vision and it was his prototype and it was his idea. And those guys kind of molded what they thought Adam Gaze wanted. And so it was a, a decently working wheel there of three guys. So I think that Gaze's his final power or final say was ultimately very powerful. I just wouldn't say that it was 100% his – like he wasn't out there doing you know college scouting and, and finding these guys on tape. Like He just gave him an idea – and they basically went and filled the cupboards for him, if that makes sense.
2: So in other words, he was like a CEO who had the grand vision, and then he told all of his managers underneath him, here's what I'm looking to do. I need you to go out and find me people that fit into what I want to do.
3: That's how I would perceive it. I'm not going to give you uh, like an absolute on that because obviously I'm not like within the situation to where I can give you a, a concrete answer, but that's how I viewed it from the outside, yeah.
2: This is the Overtime Podcast Network. I want to get back to what you were talking about with Greer because there's talk now that Joe Douglas may come in. Daniel Jeremiah is another one. Obviously, people know him from NFL Network, but he's a former scout with the Ravens that he could come in and get involved with the college scouting. To the best of your knowledge, the way that you were just talking about how Gase would communicate his vision and then his lieutenants would go about plugging up the holes the way that he wanted them plugged up. Is that more or less what Chris Greer was doing in those drafts? He was making the best out of what Adam Gase told him to do. So in other words, if Gase told him, I want A, B, and C, he would go out and get A, B, and C, but he would get the very best A, B, and C.
3: I'm inclined to think so, but there's also a a residual impact from this year's draft class that kind of carries over from what their drafts were before. So it almost makes you wonder how much Gase had involvement in the draft room because Miami has, for the last several years, have been all about blue blood programs. Alabama, Ohio State, Penn State. Give me the primary colleges and give me the best talents from those colleges. And they did that again this year, going back to Christian Wilkins at Clemson, obviously. They took two players from Wisconsin. So they're very much into the blue blood, five-star type of programs. And that was pre-Adam Gaze and post- or during Adam Gaze's tenure and now post-Adam Gaze's tenure. So I think that maybe it has a little bit more to do with Chris Greer's control in that regard. But I just, it's hard to say because Gaze had so many of his lackeys that kind of came along with him, and we'll talk about that here in a minute more, I'm sure. But it's hard to differentiate who did what in this organizational structure that was, like I mentioned, convoluted, but at the same time, there was this like coherent line of thinking that kind of added up. So it's very, very ambiguous in terms of who was responsible for what, if I'm being honest.
2: I want to ask you a little bit about Ryan Tanhill because one thing that you hear is a major defense of Gaze is, well, he was stuck with Ryan Tannehill, so what did you expect him to do? Now, I've both defended and smashed Ryan Tannehill at different points because I think that Ryan Tannehill is definitely better than most of his critics give him credit for, and I think he's worse than his most strident defenders think he is. But I also think that a lot of people that are defending Gase will point to Tannehill as a crutch and say, Tannehill was there there was a limit to what he could do look at what he can do with Sam Darnold the sky's the limit and so that's more or less what the narrative becomes tell me a little bit about what the relationship was like between Gase and Tannehill and how much he had to do with development lack of development so on and so forth
3: no I think that You can listen to what a coach says in a press conference. You can believe him or you can choose not to. You're probably right to do either of those things because football is this weird sport where you can get to the podium and just lie through your teeth. And it's like generally accepted. And I think that Gaze may have done some of that because when he first got the job, he said that he took the job because of Ryan Tannehill and what he offered. And if you watch Ryan Tannehill on tape, when it's going good for him and he has all the athletic ability and the big strong arm, it's like, okay, what are we missing with this guy? That doesn't have him in the in the Pro Bowl every single year because he looks like that at times and shows those flashes. And that really was his career because 2013 he showed he showed you know some promise. 2014 he played really well. And then 2015 he bottomed out. And then 2016, when Gaze got here, he kind of was forced into playing Ryan Tannehill to his strengths because of the way the offense set up. Because the first four or five games, they tried that no-huddle tempo offense, and it just didn't work. They were getting blanked. And, you know, full halves, even full games, they weren't scoring points. And then they went back to this 12 personnel play action heavy offense. And that's where Tannehill really excelled and had the best year of his career in 2016 doing those types of things. So Gaze was smart to recognize that skill set and build around that skill set. But I do think that Mike Tannenbaum's relationship with Ryan Tannehill and the fact that he gave him the contract extension for 100 million bucks. I think it was before 2015, or maybe it was after 2015. He gave him that big contract extension, and that basically tied his tenure in Miami to Ryan Tannehill, which you know is the worst thing you can do for an organization because then you are beholden to a player, regardless of how well he plays, just because of the contract you gave him, and that's kind of where they got with Ryan Tannehill. So for better or worse, Gase was stuck with Tannehill, and he tried to make chicken salad, which he did in 2016, but once the knee went out, man, and he lost the athletic ability and came back in 2018 and the timing wasn't there, and the ability to move by the pocket wasn't really there. That It just all went downhill. And then he took the shoulder injury and lost the fastball. Then he got stepped on his ankle and was even less mobile. It just was like a perfect storm of Ryan Tannehill falling apart piece by piece. And I think that was when Gaze started to kind of turn on Tannehill because when he had that shoulder injury and people kept asking about the timeline, Gaze even said, like, I'm tired of talking about this guy. Like he, he was fed up to him at a certain point, and I think that he kind of realized at that point he was stuck with Tannehill and his career and his Dolphins tenure relied on Tannehill's performance, and there was nothing he could do to get out from underneath that. So I think that he ultimately grew tired of him, but I think it started off as a relationship that was really strong and and kind of blossoming at, at first.
2: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line
1: at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: At any point, were there rumblings that he was looking to move on from Tannehill or even draft a guy maybe in the mid-rounds to groom to eventually replace him?
3: There was a report that the Dolphins wanted to trade for Matt Stafford last year, and the talks died down after the Lions wanted like multiple first-round picks. And they said that was Adam Gage-driven. Now again, do you want to believe it or do you not want to believe it? I tend to think that maybe he did, and I think that had more to do with the injury and the fact that he couldn't rely on Tannehill anymore because, you know, he didn't get the surgery in 2016, and he comes back in 2017 and makes it through like, two practices before it got torn again, so I think that he did want to find ways out from underneath Ryan Tannehill, but he also had that ego about him where he said, you know, I can make the best of Ryan Tannehill and make this a playoff team like he did in 2016.
2: When you talk about roster building, we talked about the dynamic of him letting everybody know what he wanted, and then they tried to fill it in his image. What were the priorities that he put on the team in terms of filling the roster? Which spots did he think were the most important? Obviously, we know quarterback, but what did he really put a premium on?
3: That's a great dichotomy because you guys went out and put all the money into Kelechi Semele. So there was an emphasis on the interior offensive line, which was a thing that Dolphins fans just hated over the years because he did not value the guard position, and it showed by how bad the guard play was. And then, of course, he goes out and signs Josh Sitton to a one-year deal, and he plays one game in, 20, in 2018 and gets injured. So I think the offensive line, he always kind of thought that in his quick rhythm passing game, it wasn't really imperative to have this, you know, elite level blocking offensive line. So I think that he kind of takes away from that area. I think he obviously values the quarterback position. And I think he values versatility at the offensive skill set because he wants to get into that tempo offense and he wants to be, you know, fungible from 12 personnel to eleven personnel and being able to go three by two with an empty set from both personnel packages. So versatility at the skill spots doesn't give a damn about the interior offensive line. I think he really cares about his tackle play and he wants to have a quarterback that can he can trust and, and he kind of build that relationship forward with, with uh, the
2: quarterback. One of the biggest criticisms of Mike McCagnon during his tenure with the Jets is that there was a complete lack of investment on the offensive line for the most part. Until Chuma Adoga, the Jets hadn't picked an offensive lineman on day one or two since he had been here. So you're basically telling me to expect more of the same under Adam Gase.
3: It would sound like it because all their draft picks that were on the offensive line were like on day three or later, and they would just sign like bargain bin type of free agents in the offseason, too. So, it, I mean, I did a study on this a while ago. I think it was over the last three years, the Dolphins started 17 different guards or centers over a three-year period. So it was always a just always a, a you know a situation that was overturning itself.
2: I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you remarked on earlier, talking about how this all reminded you of the final days of Adam Gase. And then you also said to me before we started recording that there were some people that believed that Gase was trying to get himself fired. What did you mean by that?
3: It's that's almost like tinfoil hat to me. But when you look <laughs> at the evidence to it, it's it almost kind of adds up because the things that he was saying at press conferences were really like self-indicting and like self-deprecating of his own skill set because there were they asked him like about certain games they had lost. And I, I mentioned this to you off the air. That after that Vikings game, they got beat like 44 to 17 or something like that. And the Vikings couldn't do a thing on offense before that or after that. And they show up against the Dolphins and just take them to the shed. And someone had asked him why that happened or why that was the case, why the struggling offense all of a sudden could find success against your defense, which, you know, he doesn't even know what's going on on that side of the ball. So kind of funny in that way, too. But he had said, well, the Vikings had just fired their offensive coordinator. So those guys were pretty fired up. And it's like, you really is that really what you want to say to the media? Is that what you want to present to your boss as the reason you're losing games because they fired a coach and got them fired up? So if we fire you, are, are, is our team going to come back and play better? It's just there was always these really strange excuses that like, I don't understand how a man that wants to maintain that position would say those things. And it just became a thing that He was saying week after week, he was really defeated and beaten down by the end of his time here in Miami, back to back years with three consecutive losses, like blowout losses to end the season. I think that he just kind of saw the writing on the wall. He saw the direction of this team because I think that the Dolphins, once they started losing some of those games late in the year, they kind of said, we need to get off this seven and nine, eight and eight mediocrity wheel that keeps us here every single year and maybe take a step back. And do what the Dolphins have eventually done now, where they acquired 12 draft picks next year and have $120 million in cap space. That was the plan. And I think when Steven Ross kind of showed that plan to Adam Gase, he was like, no, nah, forget this. I'm going to go somewhere where I have a chance to win because I'm not trying to rebuild. And so I think they kind of had different conflicting ideals about what the Dolphins should be in 2019. And that's when things came to a head and he kind of started getting this, <laughs> these strange answers in press conferences.
2: Were there rumblings about problems with the players before this supposed turn towards trying to get fired, or did this all develop at the very end?
3: The player thing was a consistent thing throughout the three years with Adam Gaze, because you go back to Jay Ajayi, and I'll always contend that he, or Dolphins fans for the most part will contend, and he's even proven this with some of the stories about like renting that house in Los Angeles and trashing it, but Jay Ajayi... So Jai is just an asshole, and, and Jarvis <laughs> Landry is the same way. He's, i mean—Landry's a hell of a player and a hell of a competitor, and I respect the hell of him for it. But he's kind of an asshole teammate when it comes to like expectations and the way he treats people. It's not that—it it sounds like leadership when he talks about the commitment to the game, but it's more of like a like a big brother little brother thing where they don't want to hear that type of talk from a grown man to another grown man, like challenging their manhood in a way. And so both those guys were kind of a-holes. And so I, I don't put too much stock into that. But the fact that he started rubbing guys the wrong way in 2018, and the fact that, like, and Sue was maybe not the biggest fan of Adam Gase, I just – I never really thought that he was a player's coach in the sense that guys loved him, except for, like, one guy, and Albert Wilson loved him. But other than that, pretty much everything you hear – is negative towards Adam Gase. And players even went out to tweet about things about Adam Gase when he got fired, like Jordan Phillips, for instance, who got cut by the Dolphins last year, went to Buffalo and got himself a personal foul in the middle of the game for trying to taunt Adam Gase. So there's just so much history about players that don't think too highly of the coach for me to think that he's well-respected among the players.
2: There's a perception among people that it's more or less a prima donna thing. Like you said, it's jerks like Ajayi Or like Jarvis Landry. And so why should anyone take that seriously? A lot of guys don't like Bill Belichick, people will tell you. Why is this different? Do you think that it's a matter of, like you said, straight up not respecting the guy? And is this something that extended well past guys like that into well-respected veterans?
3: I think it's it's the results, man. Like If you don't have the results to back up that attitude, it's just not going to go over well. Like You kind of have to earn the right to be that way. And that's how he was with the media, too. And the media did not like talking to Adam Gates, especially after losses and, and and when things didn't go right. Like in the preseason, for instance, the Dolphins would continuously have horrendous showings on offense in the preseason. And the media would always ask him, like, why is this not working? Why are you guys not scoring touchdowns? And his response to a man every time was always like, You don't know what you're looking at. You don't understand the process. And while he's right in saying that, like, of course, Adam Gage knows more than any beat writer that ever lived. It's just it was this very like conceited mentality that it's you shouldn't be talking that way when I can look at the results on Sunday and see how bad you're performing. And I think that's kind of the way he conducts himself that like regardless of my bad results, the way I'm doing it is the right way. And you should fall in line, even though the results aren't there.
2: Isn't that pretty much what happened with Steven Ross too, that Ross questioned his decision on something and he got an earful of, who do you think you are? I'm Mr. Football and you just sit there and own the team and I'll coach it.
3: Yeah, that was the report that we had heard. And like I said, I can't substantiate that stuff because I'm not there to hear it, but that was the report that he kind of mouthed off to Steven Ross and someone had to step in and say like, dude, you can't, that's your, that's your boss. Like you can't talk to him that way. So I, I did remember hearing that. I'm not sure if it's true, but you know, where there's smoke, there's fire.
2: Last question, Travis, because I know you got to run. I wanted to know what you think about how the organizational structure is going to go. Let's say Gase brings in some guys that he's comfortable with, and so ultimately he's going to be the one that you would think is pulling the strings because he got these guys the job. Do you think that it's a situation where Gase will be willing to trust their opinions, or is he going to basically say, I'm the guy who's running the show here. And so I'm going to make this decision and you can go sit back down in your office or something like that.
3: Yeah. I would probably say the latter, just based on what I've known from Adam gaze over the years. And, you know, I think the best example to look at for that is Dow Loggins, who has followed gaze now to three teams with Chicago, Miami, and now the jets. And people kind of asked gaze or, or asked Loggins, what his specific role on the team was because he wasn't calling plays he was the offensive coordinator, but we all know that Adam Gaze runs the offense. So what exactly was his role? And one of the things that Gaze had kind of, you know, relayed to the media was that he wants guys around to understand his personality and to understand his temperament because he's kind of a difficult guy to understand and to get along with. And so he surrounds himself with guys that do understand that mentality. And so when you think about the GM hire, I would be stunned if Adam Gase didn't have a lot to say or a lot of say in who they ultimately decide to hire there. So I have to imagine that he's going to be putting his stamp of approval on whoever that GM is. And that GM's going to have to like Adam Gaze as well. Otherwise you're going to have the same situation again in what, six, seven months from now.
2: You think that there's anybody that could actually work with him? <laughs>
3: yeah, there's gotta be right. Like there's gotta be guys that have that same competitive juice and guys that are willing to, you know, be amenable to their, their own opinions. But at the same time, just like respect, you know, respect one another and you should be able to get along. And that's why like, I think about Daniel Jeremiah, who I just think the world of would be a pretty good fit there. As long as, you know, he's willing to kind of take on some of that responsibility for (laughs) mending that relationship with Adam Gaze or whatever that relationship might be. But I I wouldn't say it's impossible. I just think it's going to be difficult because Adam Gaze is a difficult guy to get along with. He holds a grudge like nobody else's business, and he's just kind of very set in his ways and very rigid that way.
2: Sounds like a tough nut to crack. We'll see what happens here. (laughs) It's going to be interesting here in the AFC East. I'll say this much. He definitely would not have gotten along with the new quarterback in Miami. I'm almost certain of that. And I know that you've yep. got a project that you've been working on involving him. And before we get to that, I just wanted to know, do you have any advice as a Dolphins fan? I know that you said you hate the Jets, but there's some <laughs> of the fans that you actually like. So do you have any advice for us in terms of going forward, how to deal with the Adam Gase era? Uh,
3: don't get too excited about September results because you'll probably start off 3-0, and 4-2. Um, December is a different story, so just be prepared for that, and uh, be prepared to be very frustrated by the things that he talks about in the media after things don't go his way, and don't expect him to take accountability for things that go wrong either.
2: Mm, yeah, That sounds like a recipe for disaster Here with the New York media <laughs> Should be interesting to watch though Never a dull moment here with the Jets Travis Wingfield of Lockdown Dolphins And com. Before you go Travis, why don't you let anybody know For people that want to get a look At your project that you've been working on With Josh Rosen or even just listen to your podcast And check out the website Where can they go ahead and do that Because I know that regardless of whether or not You're a Dolphins fan If you're an AFC East fan, you want to know everything Everything you can about Josh Rosen and what he might be in that Dolphins offense because obviously they're just gonna be competing heavily with the Dolphins and they're gonna be playing him two times this year. So why don't you go ahead and let us know about that?
3: Yeah, so I think if you want to qualify me as a non-homer, just check out my Josh Rosen project because it's pretty hard to find positives in his tape last year. And this project is basically charting every single throw. I talked to Scott about it off the air, you know, from formations, from the balance of the formations. From the play call, from the air yards on the pass, the the pressures allowed, that kind of thing. I charted everything on Josh Rosen's rookie year. So every game that Josh Rosen played is charted up on LockedOnDolphins.com. I I think the Dolphins are going to wind up drafting his replacement next year because I just don't see a franchise quarterback there. I remain hopeful, but I'm also realistic. So I don't have that high of expectations for Rosen going forward.
2: Mm, you sound like a Jets fan, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
3: Mis- com- misery loves company, man.
2: <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Travis. Really appreciate it. Make sure you go to LockedOnDolphins.com and listen to on Dolphins. I'm not a Dolphins fan, but I listen to it all the time because you got to know what the enemy's up to, and there's nobody better at letting you know about that than Travis Wingfield. So check out his website. Check out his podcast. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and Turn on the Jets